Today's episode of the Gotcha 9 podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Kyle's Kitchen. Check them out in Santa Barbara and Goleta. They got great burgers, they got great fries, they got great salads, and they got adult beverages. They are open for lunch and dinner, so please go on in, check out Kyle's Kitchen. Proud sponsors of UCSB Baseball. Okay, we got a a jam-packed podcast this week. We got Virgil Vasquez, who was a, a great gaucho pitcher, played a long time in the minor leagues and major leagues and around the world, and still coaching baseball. So we sat down and talked a lot of pitching. And then uh, at the very end, me, David, and Spencer do our picks for the LCS, and we share some more stats about uh, major league baseball. So without further ado, let's get to Virgil Vasquez here on this episode of the Gaucho 9 Pod. It's one of the most beautiful views of any campus in America, the Pacific Ocean crashing against the shores of UC Santa Barbara every morning, noon, and night. There's the one-strike pitch, and Mitchell belts the deep left. Cabrera is going to watch it fly. He strikes out the side for the second consecutive inning, and Armani belts it to deep center. Gauchos are going to Omaha. Can you believe it? Here's the 0-2 pitch, and a curveball is swung on him. And the score is due. Here comes Mitchell. He's going to score. And the Gauchos are the 2019 champions of the Midwest. Today on the Gaucho 9 podcast, we've got another great guest. He was a right-handed pitcher for the Gauchos from 2001 to 2003. Born and raised in Santa Barbara, graduate of Santa Barbara High School, Godons. He was a seventh-round pick of the Detroit Tigers in 2003, made his Major League debut in 2007, pitched in 19 games in the majors, spent two seasons in the Atlantic League, and spent three seasons in the Australian Baseball League. Currently, he is a minor league pitching coach with the Minnesota Twins and a nomad of sorts. Please welcome to the Gaucho 9 pod, Virgil Vasquez. Virgil, good morning again. What's up, Kev? Yeah, it's good to be back again. <laughs> Round two. <laughs> so, yeah, disclaimer, disclaimer. We recorded this last week, and I was the dunce and didn't make sure that it was recording. So we did a whole hour of great content, and it didn't save. So here we are once again for round two. So like uh, like most baseball players, we get better with each rep, right? That's the truth. <laughs> That's the truth, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one, seeing how it changes, um, even though we don't even know what the first one was. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, are you in the same place as you were last time? Because you're currently on the road, you're, you're driving around, you're living in a camper, um, and you were in Carolina, North Carolina last week. Are you still in Carolina? Yeah, last week I was on my way into Asheville, and now I'm leaving Asheville. I'm heading to Charlotte, North Carolina, to visit an old friend. Uh, he was a strength coach with the Twins, Ben Lachance. Um, he's a strength coach now at a college there in, in Charlotte. So it's it's nice and warm and sunny here in Santa Barbara. It's going to be a warm week. What's it, <laughs> what's it like in Carolina? Is it uh, are it's the amazing the colors changing? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, so when I got here, there was a lot of green and a little bit of color. And as I leave, it's just there's a lot of reds and oranges. And um, I got to ride because I'm really into riding my bike right now during this COVID experience. So I got to ride a couple days and then Saturday, Sunday, just and half of Friday, just rained nonstop. So it was kind of just a relaxing uh, weekend, just sitting in the camper, uh, listening to the rain. 
That's cool. The pit pat on on the roof. Yeah. Sometimes I miss the rain. I'll be honest. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the first rainstorm that we have here. But it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> we need it. <laughs> we need it in Santa Barbara. Always. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's jump into some baseball stuff. Yeah. You were uh, you were a gaucho. You're born and raised in Santa Barbara. Uh, what was uh, your high school experience or what was your, like your youth baseball experience growing up here on the Central Coast? Uh, really good. Um, so I had some really good coaches in Pony League, came up through Pony League, uh, played at McKenzie Park, just a few blocks from my field, my, my field, my home. I live in the San Roque area, my parents do. And then uh, Santa Barbara High, great experience. Um, you know, Fred Worker was there and he's a storyteller and a, and a life teacher and uh, about doing things the right way uh, just as much as it is about learning skills about baseball. And so, you know, I, I took a lot of off the field and personality traits that I learned from, from that experience. So I think all of that really helped me through the, through like getting to Santa Barbara and then being with Myers and Bronze, um, you know, learning from them and competing on that stage, uh, especially, I don't know, we'll probably might talk about it, that 2001 team, uh, special, special experience with those guys. And, uh, yeah, I really loved growing up in, in the baseball world in Santa Barbara. And you had two teammates in high school that joined you at UCSB, Spilly and another Warwicker, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> what, was it, what was it like uh, have, playing with those guys in high school and playing with those guys in college? Yeah, well, actually, I played with Spilly. Donnie Warwicker, I didn't play because he was uh, – five years ahead of me and he was a red shirt when red shirt senior in college when I was a freshman. So he was my catcher. Um, seeing Spilly again, Spilly's a special human, man. He is just, uh, you know, hard back then, hardworking, uh, well, he's still hardworking, but just a special human, good at the game and always looking to get better. I remember we'd TB in that right field corner and they'd be flicking, uh, bottle caps at him and he'd be hitting with a wooden, <laughs> like a wooden dowel. You know, and the dowel was getting smaller and smaller, and and it turned from bottle caps into can tops. You know, those little like the things you pop open a like a soda can with. Yeah. And it turned into those. So even the the, the implement they were hitting got smaller. Um, but yeah, I love Spilly to death. We still stay in contact. And then uh, with Donnie, it was really fun because as a catcher and a senior, he really got to lead me and help me. So he called the games. Um, you know, I really leaned into him for a lot of that stuff and whatever put down, I was like, yes, sir, let's go. Let it eat. It's funny you mentioned the bottle caps because I used to play, like, waiting to play high school games. We'd either hit wiffle balls because we couldn't hit BP. We'd either hit wiffle balls or we'd hit Gatorade caps, the orange <laughs> the orange ones. Yeah, oh, the orange Gatorade caps. Yeah, and you could flick them and, and throw curveballs and sinkers and slide, like, all kinds of stuff with those. That, that's funny that you bring that up. It's totally a spilly thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Bottle caps and stuff. That's great. <laughs> yeah, well, it was a lot, yeah, fun to watch. So your freshman year was 2001, mm-hmm. and you were a starter on that team, and we've covered that that year a lot. Uh, went to a regional, won 40-plus games. You, know, you, had, you had Skip on that team. You had Spilly on that team and, and a bunch of other great players, the, the Molidors, the Peskies, the Garcias. Like, yeah. What was it like for you to jump into that environment and have – know that much success earlier in your college career yeah to come in on a team and have that kind of leadership you know there's other guys like uh, Jeff Bannon RJ Smith and then we had a bunch of pitchers Riley Ogle uh, 
James Garcia. Uh, who else is our weekend guys? Yeah, but a lot, of, a lot of great talent. A lot, and it was just fun to come in. And we were, I think we were a little older that year, and so, you know, I just kind of jumped into their environment, and there was no stopping these guys. Man, <laughs> we had a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and just being mentored. You know, R.J. Smith helped a lot, uh, and then you know, Myro helping lead, leading us along the way. Um, yeah, I wish I could experience that year again. It was a lot of fun. So on the first go around that we covered, you mentioned that you wanted to hit and pitch, or I guess other <laughs> words, you, wanted, you wanted to pitch and hit. And, and hit, yeah. In the alumni game, like I've, I've seen you swing it, and you can still swing it. But how did it become? How did you settle into only pitching? Because you came in that freshman year, and they're like, "Hey, Bronx, like I could swing it. Let me hit." But how'd that change? Yeah, I was like, "Hey, Bronx, let me hit, man." I, you know, I hit some bombs in, in high school and he's like, all right, we'll give you some chance, some chances. So I got a couple ABs and I was, you know, it was fine. I was comfortable, but I never got to practice because I was always with the pitchers. And then one day he put me in against this 95 mile an hour wild guy. <laughs> and the guy hit me right in the hip. Like a, I don't remember the count. This square in the hip. Boom. I threw the bat. And then, well, maybe five feet. Threw the bat five feet to the, the third base dugout. And I, my team was in the first base dugout. I walked the first base dugout. I look at Bronx. I'm like, Bronx, I'm done. No more. I'm just going to pitch, man. I'm good. <laughs> and I didn't touch a bat since. <laughs> or, you you maybe, didn't even go to off. first base. You didn't even no. go to base run? <laughs> no, I was done. No, I was done. <laughs> I'm done. I'm doing this. <laughs> 95 to the hip. That's no joke. That yeah, no. I'm, that mark's probably still there, potentially. Yeah, it's in my in my soul. <laughs> well, like, do you have any like do you have any specific memories about your your college days? Like something that really stands out, something that you that you learned or someone who you met, like or just a memory of campus or or games or road trip, something that really stuck with you as you moved on in your career. Um I don't know. I just, I remember the camaraderie of the guys and, you know, being on that campus, like, you know, you show up, I remember my parents dropped me off and I didn't have a car, even though I lived in Santa Barbara and you're like, how many campuses can your parents drop you off? And you only need a, a beach cruiser <laughs> you know, to get around to everywhere. Um, you know, so just, just that whole environment of beach cruiser, uh, working hard at the field, then getting to class, um, studying and then the camaraderie of the guys. Uh, I remember Bronze gave this speech one time and he said, he said like, who would you want to like, like have your back? You know, who's, who's the guy that you would want to have your back? And everyone's like, um, I don't know. Like, you know, no one's saying anything because they're listening to the speech. And one, one of our old, older uh, veterans says something like this guy and everyone's like yeah okay yeah i would i would do that and then the next guy though gets up and he's like any one of you any one of you i trust all of you guys i want all of you to have I, any one of you i I want you to have my back and it's because he's like because i have your back and i was like dang all right and that that like i remember because it wasn't his speech it was the player 
commenting on where he was leading. And I, I don't know if it was purpose was that, but once that it really changed, I don't know if it changed it, but um, it really brought us together. I remember that part. It's all about team chemistry, man. It's all yeah. about the camaraderie. Mm-hmm. That's great. Okay. Let's, let's jump into your pro ball career. Cause you get drafted seventh round and, and you moved up pretty quick, but you had some bumps along the way. Uh, specifically when you first arrived in, uh, I think it was the New York Penn League. Is that right? Or uh, up, in, there, up, yeah. in, up in New England? Uh, so how did your minor league career get started? Drafted. Uh, so I show up my first day, you know, seventh round. And, you know, your mind's like, oh, I'm going to get paid. I got to hold out until I can get the most money I can get. Right. So that's what all the advisors tell us. So anyways, I waited a little bit to sign. And I get to my first game, and uh, we're on the road. So there's no game at home. We're getting on the bus. So I get to the clubhouse, and the manager looks at me. He's like, where the hell you been? You're late. I'm like, what? I, I, I just got here. They just flew in. The guy just taxi dropped me off. He's like, you're late. Get on the bus. What the hell is that thing under your lip? Because I had this little, like, you know, thing under my lip. This little hair, what do you call it? Fu Manchu? Something like that. And, uh. <laughs> I was like, uh, all right, where, where are we going? He's like, well, the bus is out there. So I go open the, the door to the locker room, go outside, turn the corner. <laughs> it's a yellow school bus. <laughs> I was like, oh, welcome to Pro Ball. Here we go. <laughs> so kind of felt like Forrest Gump when I got in there. I walk in and all because I was late. They're waiting for me and all the seats are taken. And I kind of walk up the aisle slowly. And by the time I get to like the fifth or sixth seat, this guy looks at me. He scoots over and he's like, you can sit here if you want. <laughs> and as my boy, Andy Baldwin. And since then, uh, we became good friends. Uh, that was how I got into the game. Um, yeah, it was a fun fun season, Onion. I think I had a seven ERA. My first walk was with the bases loaded. And, uh, you know, there was a lot there was a lot of stuff mentally going on more than just the game, trying to figure out how to live, live away from home. Um, you know, figure out my workouts, my diet, try to dial all that in just so I could be prepared uh, to pitch. It, do you remember if it was a, if it was a big adjustment? Like, because you grew up in Santa Barbara and then you went to college in Santa Barbara. Like, ordinarily, a lot of kids will have that first experience of moving you know, away from home when they go to college. You know, say if they're they're from Northern California, they go to school in Southern California. If they go out of state, like they have that introduction to living away from the comers of home or in an unfamiliar place when they go to college. But you had that when you first went to pro ball and you know, you don't necessarily have the rigid structure of being in college where you got to go to class and then you have study hall and, and stuff like that, that kind of keeps you grounded. Like what was it like making that adjustment the first year that you go to pro ball as your first year really away from home? Yeah, so I've always been pretty independent. So it wasn't that like being away from home was the adjustment. It was so my parents have always supported me from any distance. So it's more about getting into the routine of professional baseball. So when I got into there, they're like, you can't lift, you know, and they or yeah, you have to lift this way. And I was like, my mind was like, what? Like, I've done this. This is the best training in the world. That's what like, I still believe it was. 
and now you're going to say, I can't do it. So I would do their lifting and then I would go to, and I would sneak to another gym and I would do my lifting. Cause I would like, there was this mental, I don't know. There's this belief that if I stopped lifting, I would lose it, you know, cause I'd work so hard to get there. And so it was about creating a routine and being open with them and talking with them and not trying to hide my lifts and, and then also trying to figure out how to eat on the road. Cause for the half the season, I didn't have a car. And so you're living in the Oasis hotel and the food was, the food's really improved in the minor leagues, but back then it was, wasn't so hot. So it was more about the adjustments to, you know, supporting myself away from the field so I could perform at the level that I, that I wanted to. And this was something that we, we covered in our unrecorded meeting that <laughs> I think like we like this is the benefit of doing it again because we kind of like you revealed that stuff to me at the end but now I kind of get a chance to segue in and, mm-hmm. and work our way into it because your minor league career or your professional baseball career I mean, it lasted 10 plus years like yeah and you never got hurt that was something that you mentioned and you kind of settled into you've over like trial and error and making adjustments and moving around and meeting new people, like your training regiment kind of morphed and changed and you found like the perfect recipe almost. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But over your 10 year career, I mean, you pitched at every level of the minors, you pitched in the major leagues, you pitched in the Atlantic league, the Atlantic league, which is independent ball and you pitched in Australia. So like, what I want, what like the point I'm trying to say is like an extended minor league career, like may not sound glamorous to some, but it's really something to hang your hat on, especially when you're pretty much pitching healthy the whole way through, and you're you're taking steps, learning as a pitcher, learning as an individual, and really doing something that you love. So, I think the the question that I have is like along that path who were some of the most inspirational like figures that you came across? Cause you're a person who likes to be out and interacting with people and learning on the fly. So like, w- were there some moments at any level that really stood out that kind of morphed you into where you are currently? My a ball, my, my, my high pitching coach. He was also my triple A pitching coach. He was one that gave me a belief system because I was always a strike thrower and people would say like at the lower levels, you get hit more than at the upper levels because you throw so many strikes. It's almost like you throw too many strikes. That's what they would say. Sometimes you throw too many strikes, Verge. I'm like, what are you talking about? And so, but over the course of the season, you're going to win if you do that. So this guy, he said, um, Britt Burns. He's like, we'd have these meetings and I loved them. He's like, what do you know when you know how to pitch? What do you know when you know how to pitch? That was the title of the meeting. I'll write a book called that, by the way. But it was like, you have a belief system that in, that in the end of the season, if I have done this, I will have a good year. Not in a game, but in a season. So it's not that he's changed the game or he came up with this thing, but he was a coordinator before and he took these two numbers. He said, he's at walk percentage and first pitch strikes and he said you have to get more than 60 percent first pitch strikes less than 15 percent 
three ball count or less than 50% walks. And you're like, okay. So he took those two numbers. If someone did both of those, they had a great season. That's all he took, those two numbers, the process numbers. So he gave me this belief, this direction to like really allow myself to be the strike thrower that I was and to like believe that I might give up five runs today, but tomorrow I'm going to dominate the same team because I'm just going to keep attacking them. I'm going to keep attacking. I'm never going to let up. And, and he really, really helped me. So Britt Burns would be one. Um, Matt Walbeck really helped me. I, we, he was my low A coach. And then we met again when I was at the pirates in the big leagues with them. He was uh, their double A manager at the time. He actually said something cause you, you brought it up at the end of my career. I called some of my coaches and I was like, Hey, what's it like to be a coach? Anything I should know? And just, I would just interview all these coaches that I knew. And one thing he said before we started the conversation about how to be a good coach is he said, uh, Burge, I want you to know that a 12 year minor league career is, that's a really good career. Like you're going to look back and, and after coaching in the minor leagues, like see that that's a really hard thing to do. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I was like, I was like only in the big leagues for 19, 19 games, you know, like I think it was 101 days. Like my goal was to be there for 10 years. I didn't get it. And, uh, and so, but as I look as a coach and in minor leagues, like guys' careers are short, you know, guys' careers are, are short. So one thing that I see as a coach is that guys that throw strikes and guys that are healthy, they're going to have, they're going to really have more opportunity and get more length in their career just from those things. And then obviously velocity and stuff and competitiveness add to that. Um, but those two guys helped me. I, I've had so many. Um, Mike Rojas was a manager I had in AAA. Uh, he was very – it was interesting with him. Like, I never, like, spoke to – I always spoke some. But he was, like, the manager. Like, he just trusted him. Like, you just saw that he had this presence about him. I think he was in the big leagues for a while with the with the uh, Tigers. And his dad was a, a manager named Cookie Rojas. He had a presence about him. Um, and then – the, some of the biggest influences are the pit, the players that you're with, like watching them work. Um, we had Bobby Jones. He was in double A, but he was, a, he had been in big leagues for a little bit and he was just down in double A again. And just from watching him work and listening to him and listening to his stories about the big leagues, you know, and, and his encouragement about where you are and how he sees your stuff, you know, the things like that, guys like that really help you along the way. Like that, those little nudges or the, you know, that mentorship from someone that's already been there. Well, you mentioned one thing, strike throwing. Oh, strike throwing. And I, I think in it might just be my opinion, but I think it gets overlooked a lot these days, especially on television and all the stuff that they cover with the big leagues. Like everyone wants to talk about velocity. Everyone wants yeah. to talk about velocity and strikeouts and home runs. Like I think strike throwing gets overlooked way too much and that's something that we preach that coach Chegets preaches at, at UC Santa Barbara still is strike throwing like let's face it you're not going to pitch if you can't throw strikes if they can't throw consistent <laughs> especially at the yeah. college especially at the college level especially yeah. at the college level and yes the guys that make it to the big leagues that are throwing 100 miles an hour they also throw strikes like that's the thing about them but if you want to have a 
a long career and play baseball as a career, like Virgil, like you got to throw strikes. I think that, throw it that's, over. that's the bread and butter right there. Yeah, you got to throw it over. Like this is like that's what Britt Burns told me because I called him and he says you're you're always going to be teaching strike throwing. Uh, so as a player or as a coach watching players now, there's two reasons. One, you really don't know your delivery. You don't know where it's going yet. So that's kind of in the, the beginning phase. But once I, for me, once you get to upper levels, even college might be in an upper level. Like the main reason is you're afraid to give up hits. It's the one thing I tell my pitchers all the time as I ask them this, or I ask people this is like, where's the one place you can throw a pitch and always miss a bat? There's one location. It's called a ball. So if you're throwing <laughs> balls somewhere in your subconscious, somewhere in your thought process, somewhere in your mental attackness, you're trying to miss the bat. I don't want to give up a hit here. Don't let them hit it. I don't want to give up the run. Or you're thinking about the runner. Or there's something inside of you that's not about attacking him. And there's two ways they can get out. They strike out or they put it in play. And strikeouts are the best result for a pitcher. But you have to get 0-2, 1-2, 2-2, to get to that, right? So, you know, that attack mode that – because if you can stand on the mound and know as the pitcher that you've already won, like you literally it's – the, it's the craziest thing. You standing on the mound, you already won. You've already won. If you throw a ball, you've, you've given him more opportunity to win. You throw another ball, now he's going to win even more. You throw another ball, now he's really going to win even more. You throw four balls, he's, he's going to win every time. Right? Like, if you throw strikes, you're going to – you keep throwing strikes and you always throw strikes, you're going to win. You're going to win. It's just you just win more often when you throw strikes. It's like – it's crazy to think. Like, you're in a game. It's like you're, you're the house, right, in blackjack. Like, you've already won. <laughs> like, you just – if you just keep playing, you're going to win. So, but if you don't – if you don't attack, if you're going to get in the zone, you give them the opportunity to really, uh, you know, if, you know, get more hits, I guess you could say. And hitting's contagious too. Well, part of strike throwing is is being able to throw an effective ball, right? So sure. an effective sure. pitch out of the zone. So yeah, I mean, we can we could really we could really dig into that. I'm sure. We might have to save that for for another podcast because <laughs> like, we could definitely go down this road. Uh, yeah, but I want to. So, yeah, go I'll ahead. Give, I'll give I'll give listeners one more tip about pitching. So in my later in the end of my career, I found out how to pitch in. People talk about in pitch in pitch in. So my my favorite way to teach pitching is using lanes, not locations. So if you can, as a pitcher. Pitching in isn't about if I get a fastball in, like the catcher gives pinky or, or the whatever index finger to throw in. You can throw up and in, down and in, sinker in, in four seamer in, in for a strike, in for a ball. You can throw you get to decide where exactly. But when you're looking in there, in is between the black and the chalk. That is pitching in. Pitching in isn't hitting the black. And you'd be surprised, like, when you aim for the black and the chalk, what happens is if you miss in a little bit, you're on the chalk and you get the ball back. If you miss glove side a little bit as a righty or arm side a little bit as a lefty and you hit the black, that's a perfect pitch, right? So you're giving yourself an opportunity to have a little bit of miss 
but still attack in there. And it gives you this lane to throw through this spout. Four or five, I think it's about five inch lane to go through. So pitching in is like right between that black and the chalk. And man, once you go there and stop trying to throw strikes, like you're just going right there, you get a lot of swings, you get a lot of called strikes, a lot of good things happen from that, that little lane right there. So once you, so you made it to the majors in 07, you had a brief stint with the Tigers, and then you really yeah. had your, I mean, your your stint with the Pirates was the longest stint in the big leagues with for you. But you had a lot of success in the Atlantic League, and you had a lot of success in the Australian Baseball League. And those are both, I mean, I would say, you know, upper echelons of professional baseball. Was pitching in and your pitching mentality something that you really came into your own in when you reached those levels or was it something that you found before you got there so while i was there i found it so the the released experience um so when i got released from baseball uh, i was with the angels and you know i I was after spring training they're like we're gonna let you go and i okay so i went packed with my car and i was staying in my car and i touched my body looked down at myself and my hands and I thought like, wow, my mom is still, you know, loves me. My girlfriend at the time still loves me. My friends are still there. I'm alive. Like there was something inside of me that thought I was going to die if I didn't have baseball. So after the release. And this, was this, to- uh, was this after your season with the pirates? Yeah. Okay. Cause the pirates, they just didn't resign me. And then I went to the Rays and I broke both my wrists and then I healed, and then that next year I signed with the, the Angels. And um, yeah, so now I got to choose. So I chose, and I got I got to go to indie ball. Um, but now that there was choice, rather than just trying to survive and have a good game so I could pitch another one, it became having like like they talk about now. If you look up Carol Dweck growth mindset, it was like oh now I was living that. Okay, what was my experience? Um, well, or not was my experience. Like, okay, like what, where could I have been better? Where did I get my power away? Did I follow my instinct the whole time? Then questions became like that rather than, uh, why did I give up runs? I couldn't believe I gave up hits. I hope I get to, I will not released. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or things like that. Like it was, there were more process questions rather than questions of, um, that shouldn't have happened. It was more that did happen. And now can I learn and change? So I remember I gave up a, a hit. It was a ground ball to the second baseman. And he just, he just came in really slowly, tapped his glove about four or five times threw it the first, the guy was safe. Um, yeah, I was so pissed. I was so mad. And I gave up three runs. And at the end of the, at the inning, I blamed him for it right in my head, in my head, I blamed him for it. But after the game, I sat with it and I was like, okay, if I could have given up no runs, would I have? Yes. Okay. Where did I get my power away? Oh shoot. When he made an error when, or when he made a mental mistake of really taking his time, I gave him my power. I said he had to be different for me to have a good game. So then after that, I made different pitches and I had different energy and different emotions. And my anger is what gave up the three runs. And so I was like, next time there's an error or a mental mistake, I'm going to, I'm going to go up to him and I'm going to like, Hey, I'm going to get you another ball. Or I gave myself a plan the next time that happened. So it would one, give me time to release the anger 
and two, also know that, hey, man, I got your back. That happens to all of us. Like, obviously, he didn't want that to happen. Like, he wasn't trying to five touch, five tap his glove and have the guy safe. So I started to do that over and over and over and over in every game. And, you know, at the end of the season, you have all these tools of where you're giving your power away and what things in the game change your emotional and mental state. And then now nothing does. Now you just pitch. Now you're just, you're so locked in and nothing can take you away from throwing strikes like we talked about or doing the one thing we need to do, which is get the hitter out. You know, when you got a guy in second and you're paying attention, there's two outs. You're like, I don't want him to score. I don't want him to score. Well then like, how do you not let him score? You get the hitter out. How do you get the hitter out? You do your pre-pitch routine and you throw strikes. You know, it's like, it's like when you want the good thing to happen, it always comes back to that 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 piece right there. Yeah, and, and this kind of this happened when you you were released from major league club, and you signed with a independent league, mm-hmm. and it kind of changed your focus, changed your focus on the mound, and changed your your attitude and approach towards the game. And yeah. I, this, like I covered this with with Justin Kelly and Greg Malley, like guys that that pitched in pro ball with a with a major league franchise and then went to indie ball or went to Mexico in the case of, of Greg and Justin where they're playing for love of the game for lack of a better term. Yeah. And they kind of had this this same realization or this same change of focus that you had where it's like, okay, I'm not worried about letting the run in just trying to survive is what you said. Like yeah. it like totally released you from this bind and mm-hmm. really like freed up and kind of changed the momentum of your career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indie ball, really, I fell in love with baseball again because it became, I don't know, pro ball was amazing. Like it, it taught me a lot about myself, but there was always about next level. It was like you're competing against a hitter. You're competing to get to the big leagues. You're competing with your friend, but you're still with your friend. So there's a lot of things instead of just pitching, just enjoying it and being with your team and letting letting it happen as it should. Um, that's why I like being a coach in pro ball right now. One, because I love helping players and I love being with the twins. Like it's just a solid organization and ownership and everything. Leadership's amazing. Um, but I'm going through the same thing I've already done. So I'm living my life over like i'm going through all the levels Everyone's, people hey when are you going to get to the big leagues when is this going to happen once i was like i don't mind anymore yeah i don't mind anymore like i'll be wherever they wherever they feel i can serve the team best and then wherever they put me i'm gonna dominate i'm gonna dominate as much as i can and do everything i can to make that place the best it can be and so it's a lot different so it allows me to be more present it allows me to not focus on where I could be or should be. Like, I don't know, just seeing it in round two. It's like round two of the like a round two of the interview, like round two of them going through the system. You know, there's no difference. I remember when I, my I was spent half the year in rookie ball and I spent half the year in double A as a coach three years ago or two years ago. And I was flying to double A. I had the same feelings as a player, the same feelings. Like oh, I'm going to double A. Well, here we go. It's gonna, it's gonna be tough. Like, do you know enough? And now it's, now it's like, as a coach, do I know enough? Do I have enough? Uh, are the players gonna listen? Or are they gonna like? Am I gonna have enough to give them? Am I, what am I gonna need? Or, I got there and I'm like, 
Oh, it's the same. Same as rookie ball. It's the same. It's a, they're just a little – there's a little less mistakes, a little more mental fortitude, a um, little more competition, you know. A wild throw doesn't lose the game. Now it's a hit it wins the game. Um, now we're getting – that's real, real baseball. Right <laughs> yeah, I was getting a little bit. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Well, it, it, it sounded like your experience in Australia, and I, I'm, I'm curious, like, how that came to be. Mm-hmm. How you got the opportunity to go to go down there and play, and if you remember playing with Dylan Jones at all, who's a assistant coach of the Gauchos, because mm-hmm. uh, he was down there as well. Yeah, uh, was he on my team? He might have been. I don't know if he was on my team. Maybe he was. May have played against him, but Dylan, sh- Dylan also played down there in Australia. Yeah, uh, and he also played with Liam Hendricks, who is uh, oh. the, the closer for the Oakland A's, and he, he told me he was a completely different guy uh, when he played with him. Yes, completely different. I played with Liam and with the Twins. He's a different human now, <laughs> but in a better way, in a good way. Exactly. Um, so my Australia experience, I was in. I got released. I go to indie ball. Spend half the year in indie ball. I come back. And now I'm stopped lifting weights. I'm just doing Tai Chi and Qigong and really understanding how my body moves and changing the movements in my body and healing different things, meditating. And I, I call check it and I go out there and I, and I start playing catch with one of the coaches. He lets me come out to the field. Uh, he plays catch with me all the time. Like, oh, I go, he's like, when can you play catch it before practice? So I, whenever he could meet me, this coach, I would go out and meet him. And I just started throwing. I was like, if I want to be a good thrower, I had to be, I have to throw. Rather than a lifter that threw, I wanted to be a thrower that knew how to move my body. And then I ended up starting to lift a little bit again, but not much. And I wanted to be a good thrower. So uh, I started throwing and Check It gets this email. He's like, need, you know, power arm needed, you know, arm for hire. What, you got anybody? And so... Checkets calls me. He's like, Hey, my buddy's in Australia. Just got uh, an email from him. Would you want to go out there and pitch? Just got another month left in the playoffs. Heck yeah, let's go. And because I'd been throwing, I was ready because he had letting me. And I remember I went to Santa Barbara City College and I went to the, the running track and I got a baseball. And I, there's this uh, like numbers on the cement wall of the bottom of the stairs where people would sit. And I just threw. <laughs> 40 pitches off the mat, off that thing as hard as I could. And I was like, all right, I'm ready. I don't need a bullpen. And so I went out there, um, first game through five innings after not throwing since the end of the other season. Uh, it was a little more sore than normal, but just soreness all went away. So, but, but when I went out there, if you start there in that January, I got there in January in Indie ball and I go to, no. So when was it? When did I get there? Yeah. January in Australia pitch in australia 30 something innings throw 200 innings that next year in the uh, indie ball and then throw another 65 innings in australia to 300 innings that year and that last game in australia that i pitched uh with the melbourne aces is when i got signed by the twins so you know it was like people ask me sometimes what do i need to do to get signed i'm like you just gotta go pitch like yeah just keep pitching like you think you pitched enough pitch more like just keep pitching. Um, you know, at my age too, I was 29 or 30 at the time. Um, 
but not I, i'll say this story but not to not because of me but just to, for people that people are always watching you in my last game uh in australia i was pitching and it started raining a little bit and it was pitching for melbourne and um and i went like seven or eight innings or something like that and this guy comes out and, and he's pitching and i was like this kid and I was like, oh, I really want to watch him pitch. I really want to, so I can see how he's doing. We've been talking a little bit about pitching. I've been helping him in the pen a little bit. Uh, and because Graham Lloyd is a pitching coach, but we kind of would talk a lot about the guys. And so it starts raining a little bit. Me and Graham are leaning over the edge of the dugout watching him pitch. And at the end of the game, the scout comes over to me and he looked, he's talking to me. He's like, I was kind of on the fence about you. Uh, sign you or not. But since I saw you in the rain watching your teammate pitch uh, and supporting your team, even though you were done pitching, that made me want to sign you. You're like, oh, wow. Okay. Well, I, obviously, I was like, heck, yeah, let's go. Let's do this. But you just never know when someone's watching just because, you know, you wanted to support your teammates. You know, you never know um, what, what that can, how that can help. It's not about helping you, but it does help you as well. A hundred percent. When at the same time, so like that was your reintroduction back into a major league franchise. Yeah. At the same time, that was also your introduction into coaching. Like, because you were signed by the Twins and then you ultimately signed on to be a coach with the Twins. And yep. like you kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier. Like you like helping people. It's something, yeah. that, you're passion- it's something that you're passionate about. But was coaching was coaching something that like at the beginning of your career you saw being an endpoint or so, like a goal to reach or did it just kind of foster and, and kind of grow over time and then eventually you were at the right place at the right time and it was a opportunity that presented itself to you? Yeah, it was more opportunity. Uh, I never really had a plan B. Um, I just wanted to give everything to plan A. And so I was just giving everything to baseball and letting that take me to where it would take me. And so I remember I was in AAA that, that's, that second year I was with the Twins. And we had – they sent some guys down from the big leagues. And uh, they called me in the office. And the guy hey, we got full roster right now. We're going to send you down to AA or else. I was like, uh, or else what? <laughs> like, or else you're going home. I was like, oh, man, okay. So I go in the family room and one guy that I actually called was Tom Myers. And he's he talked to me. He's like, hey, you just kind of look at who you are. You're kind of organizational pitcher. Um, see it as a good thing that they're sending you down and they're not releasing you and they're giving their opportunity. And I was like, all right. Um, and it, it was it was hard for my ego to accept it, but uh, I accepted the, the opportunity to go down there. But when I went down there to watch these other pitchers succeed on the mound just from a conversation we had or um just from supporting each other i was so fulfilled i was way more fulfilled than my own success and so this like my heart like found something else that i really enjoyed doing and that off season i ended up being in florida and my boss called me in the office and he's like hey verge you know we'll offer you the same players contract or we have this opportunity to coach uh coach how much do I get paid? He's like, you get paid half. I was like, Oh geez. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, but I was engaged at the time and, uh, I just went home, you know, meditated on it and 
uh, decided to coach and man, what an, what an experience it's been amazing. And it's really, I don't know. It's really been really fulfilling just to see these other guys just succeed, you know, from either stuff you've told them stuff that you haven't, you know, <laughs> like just watching guys just dominate and compete out in the mound. Full circle. Full circle. <laughs> Pretty much. It came full circle. Yeah. Okay, so last, uh, last three questions All right. that, that I want to cover. Because, yeah, now you're with the Twins and, and you're still coaching and hopefully we're, we're doing minor league baseball next summer. And mm-hmm. there's, there's a gaucho in your minor league system. That would be awesome. But Yes. Talk about uh, Joe Record. Joe Record. <laughs> oh yeah, Joe Record. Yeah. Yeah, Joe Record's with me. He's uh, me and him are talking right now this off season. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, Rec. <laughs> uh, talk about Revolution Throwing, because that's something that has come up recently. It's a, a business that you and a partner have, have founded, and you've got a, a a pitching tool that you guys sell, and and kind of this philosophy of of throwing. I mean, you've you've said throwing. Uh, a yeah. handful of times like it's, <laughs> it's kind of a mentality thing but talk about revolution throwing i appreciate it yeah throwing uh what's well, a throwing tool but so i learned how to throw healthy uh in my actually in my coaching career like learned healthy movement patterns and then took those movement patterns i went and saw this pitching coach in california uh with one of my players because i wanted to help my player under just lose some of his cueing and become more of a competitor so I went out there to learn the cues so maybe I could help him during the season and not need his pitching coach. So I go out there, and this guy, Caleb, I watch him for a day. He's really open. And I was like, okay, now give me a pitching lesson. I need to see this. I need to feel it. And so he gives me a pitching lesson. The first thing he tells me is like, you got to use your arm path and throw like you're throwing around a tree. And I was like, what? So I do it. Whoa, that's, that's what I was when I was good. When I was in AA, I was doing these drills. That's what it was. Wow. Like I knew, I didn't know I was doing it, but I was doing it. And so I took that and I, I didn't develop movements. I just took all my movements and and like orchestrated them around that movement of having the arm inside a 90 and and this spiraling whip uh, or this coiling action through the joints. And so since I learned it and I went to Australia, I was like really practicing my arm path and bringing it to the game. But then when I was as a coach, I needed a tool. I needed a tool to teach it because now I want people to throw healthy. I want my players to throw healthy. I want players to understand their arm path and their body movements. So we came up with a tool, the perfect throw. The perfect throw is an arm path trainer that trains through rhythmic, repeatable motion. So you can self adjust from doing the movement itself. So there's three positions in the beginning and it turns into three arcs. There's no other tool like it that you can have a continuous motion, do 50 reps of throwing movement and practice your sequencing and arm path like because when i was throwing i would throw and then you wait and you're thinking okay next time i'm gonna i'm gonna use my my back leg and then i'm gonna sit in my glute more okay go then you wait but now you do it you do it you do it and now like you watch this evolution of 20 30 throws and effort in like a really effortless way like more for your throw so we created this tool and then me and my buddy are like, we got to sell this thing. This thing works. It just works. And we're not, we just want to help people, like you said. So we started selling this tool for revolution throwing called the perfect throw. Um, and we just, if it works, we want people to use it. And so far it's been working. We've been getting some really good feedback on it. 
we came out with uh, another tool called the flatty because as we talk about throwing strikes is number one and how often did I do it or do we see pitchers that come in from long toss and they're throwing their flat ground work no home plate or How do they do that? or they're Go throwing a, or they're throwing up against a, a grandstand or whatever like you did at city college like yeah right against, wall. <laughs> against a wall so it's a home plate made of a specialty cloth that has a carabiner you clip it to your bag put it in your pocket because yeah, why didn't i have one i didn't have one because they're rubber you don't have enough of them like hard to carry around so we, we were like the flatty you're home away from home so <laughs> it sound it didn't sound real at first but it's a real it's a real product and it really works it's like super efficient and you just pull it out also some cages don't have plates so you know yeah just uh, carry it around you can have everybody can have one on their bag and then this the third thing we're coming out with right now is a uh, you can look out for some hot sauce wild pitch hot sauce it's a tangy uh, just above medium hot sauce. My brother, who's also part of the business, um, he loves hot sauce. It's his thing. It's, it's, it's peppers, growing peppers, cooking peppers. And so I was like, Dave, you're part of the business. Let's do your business. You just do your thing too. We love it. Like it's like we're a throwing company, but it's just about like doing what what you love. And so Revolution Throwing has a hot sauce now called Wild Pitch Hot Sauce. That's great. So the, per <laughs> the perfect throw. The flatty yeah. with mixing with a little hot sauce. That's yeah. a recipe. <laughs> Go have some uh, big old burrito with some hot sauce after. <laughs> That's great. Well, I, I, when I think about how you use the the thrower is the perfect throw. Like I've been playing a lot of golf and yeah. my dad got me this tool that it's a weighted club and it's, it's uh it breaks it, it bend it bends it doesn't uh, break okay, it, it, bends. Just, it just bends and it has a heavy weight on the end yeah and so instead of like going to the range and you put a ball down and you swing and then you think about it just like you throw a pitch and yeah. you wait for the ball to come back and then you go through your process like okay what do i do next this this weight club i just am rotating feeling the weight of the club mm. working on the the tempo of the swing like the perfect thrower where a couple of gauchos used it last year and yeah. we'll see him walking in the outfield <laughs> doing doing the perfect throw. So it's something that you can get multiple reps in a short amount of time and you work on this rhythm. And yes. like the the perfect throw, this weighted club has helped me with my swing tempo and my posture and all that stuff. Like it totally makes sense in my brain. And if you're someone out there who's struggling to throw strikes, this could be a tool for you. Yeah, and it's online. You're, you're, it's, you can get, you know, it's it's online. All this stuff, revolutionthrowing.com. Is that right? Yeah, revolutionthrowing.com, and and like you said, it's it's a tool to if you want to throw strikes. It's a tool, like as a coach, a little league coach that can't teach throwing, or it's like it's hard to teach a kid how to throw. It's hard to tell a ten-year-old how to have mechanics. So you give them the tool. You tell them put the sword in. Like, you know, like, like a warrior, put the sword in. So their arm is bent and turn to make an X and like they do it. And then you give them a ball and they don't do it. You say, put the sword in and then they bring their hand right next to their ear and they throw, and you know, Whoa, you know, so coming up with like some clever things like that really make it easy to teach throwing. Now it's like, not only like makes you better, it's just easy to, it's easier to teach because now the player has a way to understand himself. So one thing we saw that was so that I see all the time 
and you probably do as a coach too, is guys, li they're lifting their arm as they're rotating their body. But the actual like healthy throw is like a lift in and turn, not a lift and turn. Because when you lift and turn, like you're driving away from your arm. And so you think you're in a good position, but now it's like up and it like bounces out of external rotation. Kind of got kind of specific right there, but. <laughs> um, it's a baseball podcast. It's okay. Yeah, because it's all about sequencing, right? Like throwing is all about, if I can have the correct sequencing, then I can power the sequence to move the energy through the joints because it's about how you move energy through the joints like that where do you leak energy you leak energy through the transitions of the joints you don't leak energy and you like through like flexing your muscle like you, you like that's when you're turning on your energy right so you know if you can learn how to transition through the turns through all the turns about coiling and if you can learn how to to really move the energy through your joints efficiently through the sequence. And the sequence is actually pretty simple because the critical point of the throw this is what I looked for, the critical point, the one point that changes everything. Okay, so if my hand is inside a 90 and I feel the rev, we call it the rev, and I power the rev. So rather than when my front foot lands or when I get my glove side up, it's like when the ball's ready, fire. When you feel the ball ready, turn the body. So there's the body turn and there's the ball being ready. If the ball is ready early, you'll feel it. If the ball's ready late, you'll feel it. But if it's on time, it's just like a home run. It comes out effortless. So timing the body and everything to the ball, because the ball is what we're throwing. And that makes everything so much simple, so much simpler. Is just time it. It's like, oh, go, you know? And I don't know. It's It's been an more efficient way to teach it it's been more efficient way to do it myself because the reason i'm doing this because i learned that's how i taught myself how to throw is like time it to the ball rather than sequencing my upper half to the lower half because everyone says your arms late your arms late now i don't want to say everybody what i hear in baseball is your arms late your arms late what if your body's early it's easier to slow down the body than it is to speed up the arm and it's all about sequencing the two together that's that's where the money's at. Man, so many similarities with the golf swing. It's incredible. So many. It's incredible. It's like the way you can describe each one and just supplant like golf ball, head of the club, like shaft with your arm slot, the mm -hmm. the position of the of the baseball, like all that stuff. You might be you might have a <laughs> an expansion <laughs> pack, the golf trainer. <laughs> well, the thing is 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 the golf and tennis the sur tennis serve taught yeah. me how to taught my body how to be patient for my arm yes because i because i used to swing and i'd always slice and what i realized is, is like because i wasn't letting the club head go because mm -hmm. i was just trying to turn the body i was like oh my body's early there okay now the club's there now like turn the hips right when the club almost is coming through you know that bottom pendulum uh. again <laughs> this is uh, we could go Another hour. Just good, man. All this stuff. Hey, two more things. Two more things. All right. All right. Uh, alumni game. Touch on it real quick because you love coming to alumni game uh, when you're in town. And from here on out, there are going to be alumni games under the lights. Oh, and, so cool. And the, the last time you were here, uh, I think you, pro you probably got a hit. You threw a clean inning. Uh, I threw great BP to you. You yeah, great. Best BP ever. 
uh, I'll pat my back on on that Good one. Good job. <laughs> no, you you came up after and you're like, Kev, like that was awesome BP, some of the best I've ever seen. And I I didn't really know you very well at the time. I was like, oh wow, that was Virgil Vasquez. He said great BP. <laughs> so, that was pretty cool. But like, what's the alumni experience for you? It's such a special moment to come back. I remember they got rid of it for a little bit, and we just had the golf tournament. Man, it's so special to come back and be able to play against the guys, be able to sit in the dugout with old teammates and, you know, some ex-pros, some some guys that, like, you just, you know, that you're just meeting for the first time, that the, you know, the younger younger guys, some, some older vets. Uh, it's just a really fun experience to be able to come back and see them. Uh, and I love playing the game. So I come back ready. You know, I come back ready. My swing is ready. I want to win that home run derby every year, Skip. And <laughs> and uh, and just get to throw an inning. Or, yeah, one inning is enough. I remember my last, the last one I pitched, and I was hitting, and I was running everywhere, and then I went and played the outfield the last two or three innings because no one wanted to play. <laughs> and uh, I was gassed man i was gassed like nine innings a long time but um i don't know it's just a, it's a great experience to get back and support the guys see some talent we have that's coming in it's, and uh you know because you're usually playing against the freshmen against the younger guys so you get to see you know see them face them throw them some sliders see what kind of swings they got yeah i really love it yeah we'll look forward to seeing you at the yard uh when is it this year uh tbd tbd okay TBD. Hopefully, hopefully we have it on the normal weekend, but it remains to be seen. Yep. But all of you alumni out there, keep tabs because we're hoping to have it. Okay. Final thing I want to finish with: Where's your next bike trip, and where was the what's what's the best trail that you've been on on this uh, this this journey on the bike? Mountain biking. Oh my god, my new love. Um, best trail: Moab, Utah. Like I did the flow trail in Santa Cruz. I did Downeyville. I did this one called the plunge in Kernville, California, but going out, it's a 35. I ended up making a 40 mile downhill in Moab, Utah. You're just red rock technical. You can make it a little easier, but just amazing views and just the rock. I love biking down stair steps, rock up rock. <laughs> I don't know. Just making it hard. I love it so much. And, uh, it was, I ended up meeting like this group of 15 guys that were riding it too. And they were really friendly. So it was fun to have a group of guys because I was by myself. Next bike trip, uh, I'll go in Charlotte. I don't really have anything planned. Um, but, but as I get to Charlotte, I'll plan the other one. Like I just met somebody and they were telling me about a, uh, a bike, like, uh, they turn ski parks like snow ski parks into mountain bike parks so you ride the ski lift up and then you bike down so there's one near here so i think i might hit that one up uh but i gotta gotta get my riding in here soon because it's starting to it's gonna get cold and you know some snow's coming before uh, you gotta get in before the snow gets here but Asheville was amazing i went down black mountain so i ended up making a mistake i went up this fire road ended up meeting these guys and they drove me six miles to the top of the fire road, which was very grateful because I wouldn't have made it. Went down this trail called Avery. And then I rode 4.1 miles to the this other fire road to black mountain. It's called, there's, there's four sections, but I went down three sections of black mountain. But when you get to this beginning of black mountain, the single track, you have to hike your bike up two miles more. And man, that was, it was like, 
and now it's like six o'clock and then six thirty, and I'm like, uh, it's starting to get dark. I probably shouldn't have come this much, this this way. So I hike my bike up two miles, get to the top. I get to the top. Sun's almost gone. Now I'm at the top of Upper Black Mountain and never been down this thing before. Oh boy. Oh boy. So good thing I had a little light. I just a little like, not very bright. I think my 25 looms. I, I don't know the, the numbers, but end up putting that thing on my front of my bike. Could see about 20 feet in front of me and strap it on and let's go. <laughs> I ended up making it out alive. I called my buddy though. I was like, Hey, if I don't call you in two hours, send a search rescue. <laughs> Come out and look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, that that's like, I wouldn't say it's half the fun, but it's part of it. Yeah. It's that it. it's, it's just that being out in nature and, and just the unknown. Yeah. My mind, my mind said a couple things. It was like, it was like, what if there's a, Bear. and then i was like ah there's no bears come on and then it says what if there's a wolf <laughs> <laughs> or a sasquatch a sasquatch <laughs> no bro. oh that's that's cool well when when you're back in santa barbara we'll have to get up on hesitate trail or something somewhere in montecito and uh and do some biking I'd love top to, of, man. on top of uh, the baseball stuff that we'll do because i want to play catch and and do all that stuff so yeah some perfect throws well, flat ground work with the flatty, finish it off with a free breeze and some wild pitch hot sauce. <laughs> Send it. Send it. Send it. Okay, <laughs> Virgil, uh, take two, I think was really good. And uh, thank you so much for the time and have fun in, in Charlotte and wherever you head next. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate you and I appreciate the, the gauchos. And uh, yeah, let me know if you need anything else. All right, that's Virgil Vasquez. Thanks, Virg. See you, Kev. All right. Big thanks to our sponsor, Kyle's Kitchen. Go check them out in Goleta and Santa Barbara. And thank you to our guest, Virgil Vasquez. It's great to catch up with Virgil and see where he's at because he's been traveling around the country and talking baseball with him. We could have done that all day long and anticipate that we will do it some more. So to finish off the pod, we have David and Spencer here once again because we got to make our picks for the LCS and we got to recap our division series picks and run down our score right now. Tilly is in the lead with eight correct selections. Then Spencer was seven and I have six and we've got the, uh, the LCS games to pick. So before we make our picks, let's go over some, some stats cause we were, we were jabbering back and forth before we came on and David and Spencer, some interesting things that David discovered uh, regarding the strikeout. Strikeout is a common subject, obviously, in baseball these days. And uh, it's been prevalent in, at least if you're trying to predict who's going to win these series, maybe that's why you're in the lead because you had this stat before us and now you're sharing it with us. But apparently, if you strike out less, you win series. That's what it comes down to. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, I can't take all the credit. Coach Fontina shared this with the offense in our um, chat that sort of has been going on amidst the whole pandemic. Um, but it was a really interesting article um, just about how the Astros are sort of going about winning these series despite all odds, despite um, not having uh, above 500 record coming in. 
Um, they're not striking out and they didn't strike out during the regular season. So um, they actually struck out the least in their plate appearances um, at only 19.7%. Um, and in these playoffs this year in the 12 series that have been played so far, uh, 10 of those series have been won by the team that struck out less during the regular season by their plate appearance percentage. So um, the one team that's sort of the outlier here is the Rays, uh, who have a great pitching staff, and they actually struck out the most. They're the only team to eclipse 600 strikeouts this 60-game season, so more than 10 strikeouts per game. Um, so kind of that anomaly. But, yeah, I mean, that that's how the Astros have been doing it, and it, it seems like strikeouts have kind of been the biggest and best predictor of uh, postseason baseball dating back to uh, the year 2000, according to that article I was talking about. Wow. All the way back. So that 20 years, a 20 year section has gone into predicting the series with strikeout percentages. That's fascinating. Well, the other thing with the Rays, 79% of their runs scored this postseason have been with the home run. So they are really boom or bust. You strike out, you hit a homer, and then you throw strikes on the other end. That's crazy. Well, the home run has kind of just been a tale of this the last few like playoffs as well as this year. Um, your A's, Kevin. I'm sorry to see them go down. We were all rooting for them, uh, as we had. They couldn't pitch. They couldn't they pitch. Couldn't but what? the each team could hit, and that was kind of the story of it. There were a total of 24 home runs hit in that series, and it was a four game series. That is two home runs behind the most. Uh, home runs hit in any series in the postseason. Um, 26 is the record, uh, and that was in a seven-game series. So, like you mentioned earlier, they're they're playing in Los Angeles at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Great temperature, as we all know, down here in Southern California, and the ball's absolutely flying. They are hitting – they hit over 9,000 total feet of home run home runs and it's it's insane to just watch the ball fly um 24 total as i was texting a friend of mine who was a diehard ace fans he was also freaking out about the home run total um not only in the a series but in general and he was texting me and as he typed out there have been 23 total home runs hit in this series two seconds later he typed back 24 asterisk to correct himself because there was a home run hit right that moment <laughs> so the ball was zipping out and it was unbelievable, unbelievable to watch that series. Um, but that's just been the, the tale. It's, it's, it seems like it's home run or bust for a lot of these teams offense. It's, it's kind of disappointing for me. I like seeing old school baseball where there's gappers and long at bats and CNI singles and going the other way and like stuff like that. Like I like that stuff, but it was, as a fan of the A's, it was tough watching. Just like, you're not going to win a series when you're giving up 10, 11 runs. Like, it's just, it's just hard to do. And the Rays have proven that they have a superior pitching staff because they've, they've shut down Houston in that first game and they're looking good in the second game. And there's a lot of weird things with this postseason because we're playing all these games in a row, there's no break. And it's going to really test the coaching styles of 
each manager and how they manage the pitching staff if it goes deep into these series. And based on what we've the discussions that we've had, like the usually the, the stronger pitching will succeed unless you're the Rays, uh, who have the strongest pitching staff, but like we said, they strike out the most, and that doesn't bode well traditionally, but I don't know. They're just different. And it's been a weird year. So they could be the weird team that comes out winning this whole thing in the end. Well, I think that's just because the pitching is too good nowadays. Uh, you can't string together a couple of hit, hits in a row like you could old school baseball. So that's ultimately what it's coming down to, right? It's it's the home runs and seeing that series was absolutely wild. And I think it's going to play a big part in the championship series that we've got coming up. Yeah. So, so Ray's, Astros, you got the the enemy of the state, essentially, the Astros going up against the anomaly who are the Rays. And then in the National League side, you got the two best offenses in the bigs. And you have MVP winners from the previous three years. You have a potential MVP winner this year. You got a National League Rookie of the Year and probably a future MVP in that series. And I don't know. Are we going to see offense, offense, offense with the Dodgers and Raves? Granted, they're playing at a stadium that they have never played in before because these games are being played in Arlington. So that'll be interesting. But what do you guys see from the National League series? Because those two offenses are great. Well, the Dodgers do get a little bit of a home field advantage coming out of a series that was just played in Arlington as well. So they're kind of getting acclimated to that. And if they can continue on their trend to the World Series, they'd get one more uh, series under their belt in kind of their home park for the postseason. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's a star-studded matchup with Freeman, who's likely going to win the uh, MVP this year for the National League, leading in so many offensive categories. Um, the two teams just match up ridiculous on the offensive side. One and two in the MLB and runs per game one and two in home runs, one and two in RBIs, tied for first in slugging, and one and two in OPS. So you're talking about two of the best offenses who definitely benefit from the new DH rule that was implemented this year, um, sort of bolstering their lineups that were already very offensive. Um, but yeah, it's just going to be awesome to watch those two teams slug it out and not to not to take away from the two excellent pitching staffs that they have. Um, let Spencer talk a little bit about those, but uh, yeah, just excited to watch these two teams swing it. Well, with the team that has, you know, such a, such great starting talent, um, within the pitching staff, I think that the, um, as you had mentioned, the, the, the way that they coach, um, the way that they, they manage who's going into the game at what point, um, you might see some kind of stuff that's similar to, uh, what Madison Bumgarner did in 2014, where he's going in multiple times in a series, um, sometimes in a relief appearance, uh, maybe in the middle of the game. Um, I think that, you know, as I've said, they got great starting talent and that will play, you know, you can ride some guys out for longer because um, you know that with no rest, there's they're likely not going to be able to um, pitch three times instead that they might they might opt to putting them putting a starter in late in the game for more of a bullpen type session um but with the you know with the staff that they have it's almost it may it might seem like a bullpen for them but in reality it's an incredible it, it'll be a good out um i think that 
with with the offense that they've got, this kind of series is going to come down to who can um, who who can clutch up late in the game, which uh, which pitchers are able to handle the pressure. That's going to be kind of the story of at least I think which um, which of these closers can can deal and come back off of you know big appearances um, and do the same thing over again in the next night. Uh, if if the if the relievers can kind of bolster the offense and um, clutch up for them, then uh, whoever's got the better relief is going to end up winning in the long run. Yeah, and it could be. So you mentioned Bub Bumgarner. He had his moment where he closed out a World Series. And I think Verlander a couple years ago came on in relief to help the Astros win. And maybe this could be Kershaw's year. Who knows? Like he has pitched in relief in postseason before, but obviously that it, the championship has eluded the Dodgers. But it could be Kershaw's moment to shine, especially in a weird series where you might need a starter to pitch a lot of innings at the end. But LA one and two in most of the major pitching categories throughout the season, so they are strong on the mound as well. And if you're a closer. Mark Melanson, he's the closer for what the Braves, right? Yeah. I think it's probably it's. Is it a good thing if you're catching homers while you're warming up in the bullpen? Because that means does that mean his team is hitting the homer to him, right? That is correct. Yeah, <laughs> that actually did happen in in the series, the division series. So, okay, let's get to our picks here. So Tilly in the lead once again. He's got eight. Spencer was seven. I have six. And so we'll pick the winner of each LCS, and then the tie break or an additional point will be added for if you get the – so like you'll get a bonus point if you pick the amount of games. So let's start with uh, – let's start with the ALCS, Astros, Rays. I'm going to pick the Rays in five. Is my pick. So Tilly, what do you got? I think I'm going to pick the Rays in five with you on that one. Um, no, playing, I think that playing the, defense. Yeah, I think that the Astros will find a way to to scrape one of them out. But I think that that pitching staff, the bullpen as well, who was uh, led the MLB in saves this year with a kind of combined effort, no one man doing the job, but. Um, yeah, that, that staff is just ready to take the next step and get some redemption for last year as well when they were knocked out of the ALCS by these same Houston Astros. I am also going to take the Rays, but we are going to go with Rays in six. Mm. I think that uh, I think that the Astros have more um, more postseason experience. Um, they, they've been around these kind of moments for a couple of years now. So they know what it's like. The Rays, on the other hand, they're kind of, while they have had the success, they're they're really the ones that are fighting for it. Um, it's, uh, I, I said that I would choose, I would root for the Astros if they beat the A's just because I felt it was a, a bad omen every time I was rooting against the Astros. Um, that's exactly what they want. They are the bad boys that everyone is rooting against this postseason. Um, but I feel confident. I feel confident in the Rays. 
I think that they're going to do it. I think they're going to do it in six. Okay. Let's go over to the NLCS Dodgers Braves. I'm picking Dodgers in six. Dodgers in six. That's my pick. David. I think I'm going to pick. Yeah. You, you said you're picking Braves. I'm going to pick the Braves in seven. Uh, I was texting you earlier about this. This is sort of my world series. I really wanted to see these two teams match up. Um, just excited to, like I said before, to see these two offenses swing it against two great pitching staffs as well. One thing we haven't touched on or didn't touch on yet was that Atlanta's staff uh, has thrown four shutouts in five games this postseason. So right. they've kind of been unblemished except for a five spot that the Marlins got in game one um, against Freed. Um, obviously, we saw how he pitched today and keeping the Dodgers at bay with one run through six innings. Um, so I, I think that's going to go seven. I think that the Dodgers are too good to just get shut down like that, but I think the Braves, Braves in seven. Spencer's thinking it over. He hasn't made his decision yet. No, I, I got my decision. I know. Um, ultimately, I, ultimately at the start of the postseason, I was kind of hoping that the Rays would, would make it if, you know, the A's didn't from the AL side. Um, I, I really like the, the story of the Rays. I really enjoyed watching Glasnow and, and, and Snell kind of deal all year. Um, they've been a fun one-two punch to see. Absolutely dominant all year. Um, so I'm, I'm rooting for the Rays. I, or excuse me, the Braves. Um, I would really like to see the Braves beat the Dodgers. And that's not just because I'm a Giants fan, but it's because I, I'm a baseball fan. And I think that the Braves, the way that they've been swinging the bat, um, it's pretty timely, I think. Uh, I think that they've got they've got that clutch team. They're pretty hungry. They're ready to earn their spot in the World Series, be that National League champion. Um, in terms of games, it's going to be a tough one. Um, the Dodgers pitching staff is going to make it very hard, I think, and I think that we'll see a couple of starting pitchers make some relief appearances um, to kind of help bolster that the uh, the the reliever side of things. I'm going to take. I'm taking the Brazen seven. I think it's going to go all seven games, and I think it's going to be an awesome series. Okay. The picks are in. We'll see how it plays out. An LCS like we've never seen before in bubbles seven days in a row, if necessary. <laughs> well, so, bubbles for the most part, but Texas is going to have some fans, so. That's right. Those on the National League side are going to be playing in front of people for the first time in all of 2020. Let's hope they don't get nervous. Yeah, that <laughs> would be bad. All right. David Spencer, thanks for the time and the data analysis. As always, the picks are in. That's going to do it for the Gaucho Nine podcast this week. Thank you so much for listening. And Stay tuned next week. There might be uh, some big news. Maybe not, not big news, but encouraging news for next week. So uh, that'll do it. David Spencer, thank you. See you guys next week. <laughs>